This evening I want to um, explore the theme of practicing with fear. I wanted to uh, start with uh, a line which uh, many of you may know from uh, Aung San Suu Kyi of Burma. Maybe some of you have seen uh, the film on her life. How many of you have seen, I think it was called, was it called The Lady? I think it's called, how many of you have seen that? Well, go to Netflix immediately. (laughs) So, quite a remarkable film, yeah, about and quite a remarkable person. She said, uh, in the context of practicing with fear, the only real prison is fear, and the only real freedom is freedom from fear. That's a quite uh, deep subject. I remember a number of years ago, I was uh, studying with uh, Stephen Batchelor, and we were talking about fear, which interestingly is not really um, talked about much in the Buddhist psychology. There's some things on fear, but there's not as much as you might expect. It, it doesn't, to my knowledge, appear on the list of factors, and it's um, it's not really talked about so much. And he was speculating that fear is the emotional dimension of ignorance, which I liked quite a bit. In other words, both are very, very uh, primordial. And at the heart of our practice, I'd like to explore this theme maybe for another 30 or 35 minutes and leave, uh, leave at least uh, 10 or 15 minutes for us to talk together. Because from, for me, in, in taking a teaching role, what I most really enjoy is uh, the dialogue. It's the back and forth. It's the uh, inquiry and the exploration together. So... I'll intend to leave time for that, and if necessary, we'll just stop abruptly. Maybe. <laughs> so I, w- I was reflecting on this theme because maybe like uh, many of you, uh, I was um, moved a lot, and there was a lot of impact from the verdict uh, related to Trayvon Martin. And probably... For many of you, it also had a lot of impact. It seemed to reopen the kind of the wound of racism for some, which I think of really as like the core dukkha or the core suffering uh, of the country. That's really unresolved in many ways. And it probably opened up all sorts of issues. Again, differentially for different people. You know, if I think for the African-Americans I've talked to, it was especially, you know, it it basically um, opens up trauma. Again, the unresolved trauma of 400 plus years. And uh, also um, kind of opens up the belief, uh, we don't really matter. 
Right? And it's different, and other people had different kinds of reactions. And there was an article in the Chronicle yesterday, which was quite interesting, which was about the differential reactions, you know, very extreme, actually. And when they polled people nationwide, they found that people of European background, um, uh, about 50% were um, fine with the verdict. For African-Americans, the figure was 5%. And the, the number of people who were dissatisfied with the verdict for African-Americans was 86%. And for European-Americans, it was 30%. Those are pretty extreme differences, right? And so I was, I was just you know, reflecting on the different uh, themes involved and how to connect that with the Dharma. And I'm not going to particularly focus on the details you know, the legal issues, or even um, particularly directly look at an issue like racism, uh, which would be, I think, important to do, you know, another time. Um, Although I'm going to weave in some considerations, but I thought that um, looking at this issue and looking at other issues, which are very much up, kind of the larger issues, you know, whether it's climate issues or surveillance, uh, I, don't know. I don't know if we're, if anyone from the NSA is listening. <laughs> Dharma practice is very helpful. <laughs> so, um, but it, it seemed to me that in a lot of these areas um, relating to fear, is really a common denominator. Maybe it's not always directly a common denominator, but it's part of, part of these issues in a lot of ways. And we do all sorts of um, problematic things when there's fear, all of us. You know? And it seems to me that um, practicing with fear is such a fundamental... Uh, area. It's a fundamental area in our working with our own minds and hearts and our own lives. And it's fundamental for those of us who would connect our inner practice and our individual practice with being able to uh, respond to the world and be helpful. And I, I think that people who are well-trained and capable of being skillful when there is fear are very important people. And I think, to me, it's all of you. We are all, as it were, um, working with the curriculum that includes how to practice with fear. You know, how to look at it when it appears in our own minds and hearts and bodies. How to look at it when it may appear in your family. How to look at it when it appears in your community. And we're really getting training that I think uh, permits us to be of use, both with the more personal fears and the more communal fears and the more collective fears. The world deeply needs a really significant percentage of people to be skilled in working with fear and bring it into your lives in all sorts of ways. You know, some of you may work directly to train people, you know. It should be part of the training, you know, the 
kind of practice we do, working with fear, should be part of the training for all sorts of people who deal with difficult circumstances. You know, firemen and police and I think just the general, you know, general population. Wouldn't it be nice if people learned how to practice with fear at Berkeley High School, close by? Wouldn't that be amazing? I don't know, maybe they do. But it's, it's, so, it's so fundamental. And I was also thinking of that in terms of the kind of response to the larger social issues, that we really need people who are training for the long haul, you know, that really developing these skills and capacities and have a sense of patience and a sense of um, keeping on training and then bringing it out into all the parts of our lives. And this practice with fear is very fundamental. So I wanted to look at practicing with fear in, I think, uh, three different uh, ways. One is to really ask, uh, what is fear? And some of that is what we can explore uh, through our mindfulness practice, through our just looking at our own uh, minds and hearts. What does fear look like? How does it affect the mind? How does it affect the body? How does it affect our behavior? So to really look at the nature of fear. And then uh, secondly, to look at how we work with fear in our individual practice, particularly how we uh, shift the energy of fear, how we can uh, particularly come back to balance. And, and then thirdly, how we, uh, how we really bring that practice with fear into uh, larger domains uh, of action. So maybe first uh, a reading to give the sense of fear. This is from the Thai meditation master, uh, Achan Moon. Some of you may have read, he has an autobiography, or not an autobiography, a biography, which was written by the Thai teacher, Achan Mahabua. Some of you may know his, his work. And um, this is an amazing book. Uh, it might be, probably is on the web these days, maybe under Access to Insight, but it's a Quite a powerful book. Uh, Achan Moon was the teacher of Achan Cha, or one of the teachers, who was the teacher of Jack Kornfield, who, and thus the teachings come down through a lot of what we've learned. And he was probably the greatest uh, uh, meditation teacher in Thailand in the uh, first half of the 20th century. And he wandered throughout Thailand and Burma. The borders weren't so evident those days. And he, he was a Dutanga bhikkhu, which meant that he uh, kept ascetic guidelines and was a wanderer. And he spent, he spent a lot of time in the, in the rainforest. And at that time, it was very different than it is now. It was uh, filled with all sorts of animals. So I wanted to read a passage, which is part of his biography, which is the section about fear. And it's called... Uh, Fear versus Dhamma. 
Okay? And this is, imagine the context. These are wandering monks who are sleeping outdoors. Okay? In the forest. At night, when his mind is attacked by fear, a bhikkhu forces himself to do his walking meditation in the open. And so if you're complaining about the difficulty of your practice or retreats, listen to this carefully. (laughs) The bhikkhu forces himself to do his walking meditation in the open. This is the battle between fear and dharma. If fear is defeated, the mind will be overwhelmed by courage and enjoy profound inner peace. If fear is the victor, it will multiply itself rapidly and prodigiously. The whole body will be enveloped both by a perspiring heat and a chilling cold and by the desire to pass urine and to defecate. That bhikkhu will be suffocated by fear and he will look more like a dying than a living man. The threatening roar of a tiger from a nearby place or from far away at the foot of the mountains on top of them or in the plains only serves to increase his already suffocating fear. Direction or distance mean nothing to such a bhikkhu. His only thought being that the tiger is coming to make a meal of him and he is coming at this very moment. No matter how wide or vast the area might be, he will be hypnotized by his own fear into believing that the tiger knows of no other place to go but the very spot on which he is walking. And we'll come back to the details of this because it's relevant. The passages for recitation to prevent fear disappear. Ironically, what remains is that passage which serves only to increase it. He will thus recite to himself, the tiger is coming, the tiger is coming. (laughs) So we'll come back to that passage because you can see a lot of the elements of fear. So part of our practice of uh, working with fear is to investigate it and to really know how it works and to know how it works backwards and forwards. I brought in uh, a print that I have in my, uh, my study which is from the Bread and Puppet Theater. Anyone know the Bread and Puppet Theater from Vermont? Wonderful. I used to live in Vermont. It was a very, um, one, that's where the big puppets came from. And they actually had a version of Burning Man, I think, quite a while before. Anyway, this is um, a print that they did from one of their shows, which is called The Story of One Who Set Out to Study Fear. So I have that in my, you know, a few feet from where I spend a lot of time. I'll set it up here. You can take a look at it. And so we really want to look at, um, look at fear and look at what it's like. So let me ask you a question, and you can just answer like in a word or two. What are we afraid of? Pain. Pain. Annihilation. Death, annihilation. Yeah, what else? Huh? Judgment, Judgment, right. Failure. Failure. Loss of power. power. What? Mice. Mice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, loss of security. Uncertainty. Uncertainty. And we know we know that it's different for different ones of us, what we fear most. When they've done polls, they know that people are more afraid of public speaking than of death, which relates to quite a bit of what people were mentioning, judgment, failure, 
No one mentioned making a fool of oneself. <laughs> you know? But that's, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? When, when that, that people fear that. You know? And we, you know, many of us also fear what's unknown or what we don't know. We fear uh, the mysterious sometimes. Uh, you know, and it's interesting to really look carefully at fear and to study it because it's really, in a sense, related to a future experience. It's quite interesting. It's generally not in the moment. And so it's very interesting to study fear, study the dynamics, and, and know these things about it. Know, and know both personally what we're afraid of, but then when it comes, really uh, study fear. And it's very fascinating to do that. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was reflecting and I was thinking of a few of my own experiences. One of my very interesting experiences studying fear was when I was doing an individual retreat. Um, this was uh, over 20 years ago. And I was um, staying in England at a retreat center called Gaia House. And I was doing a, a three-month retreat on my own. And I was interested in working with uh, increased levels of solitude. So I started out, I was living in a little cottage near the retreat center, and there were retreats going on, but I was, wasn't really participating in them, except to eat that I participated in, and to have the meals. And um, at one point, I think about a few weeks into my retreat, I decided I want to have a little more solitude. And so I stopped eating meals with the group. And I brought the food into my little cottage. It was very, like just a small room, you know, like eight feet by 10 feet. And I started eating. And over the course of the next hours, I started feeling my body become like lead. And I started having nausea and like anxiety was just filling my system. And I didn't know really quite what it was uh, initially. And it seemed, it seemed, you know, my sense after a while was that increasing that level of solitude had gone over some boundary or tripped some wire where anxiety arose because it didn't come with thoughts, right? A lot of what we find with fear is that a lot of it's, at, at, you know, it's like the reptilian brain, right? It doesn't always come with rational thoughts, which is one of the reasons it's hard to work with because it can just be very primordial, you know? When, when there's fear, I think uh, when there's that kind of fear, uh, the rest of our systems kind of stop working, right? And we put everything into fight or flight or freeze, you know? And so... For me, it was very interesting. After a while, I got the sense I had gone over some boundary and I kept seeing if it would change and stayed with it for about three or four days. And I was just engripped by nausea and a certain kind of anxiety. But it was more than nausea. It was really very uh, body-centered. And um, after a few days, then I talked with uh, one of my teachers and he said, if you had to look at the seven factors of awakening and ask what was missing, what would you say? And some of you know that teaching, it has factors like mindfulness and uh, inquiry, energy, 
joy and rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, beautiful states that we, that we develop in. And I had a lot of mindfulness. My mind was pretty concentrated, and I quickly answered, there's not much joy. <laughs> and, and he said, what would it do to bring about more joy? And I said, well, I think I would probably uh, eat with the other people, and I just spend some time going around being with the nature, you know, being looking at spider webs and looking at the clouds and not meditating quite as much, but you know, just trying to stay present. He said, "Yeah, why don't you do that?" And so, so I did, and uh, the nausea and everything went away quite quickly. And I was kind of happy. Wow, meditation so powerful. Wow, cool, right? And um, then I had a meeting. Uh, four days later with another teacher, maybe three days later with another teacher. And, she, and I told the story and I was kind of proud how I had, how joy had developed, kind of took personal, you know, credit for joy arising, which is that familiar from your meditation? <laughs> Mine does that sometimes, like personal credit for joy arising and so forth. And, and then she said, well, that sounds very nice. And uh, what about the fear? Oh, yeah. And she said, um, maybe you should look at the fear. And I said, that sounds like a good idea, without much enthusiasm. <laughs> and, and then um, I said, yeah, I'll really do it. But um, I, think, I, think, I think I had I was having the meeting in the morning. And I said, I know exactly what will help me look at the fear. It will be, you know just uh, eating my meal by myself. It will kind of bring that back. And I said, uh, yeah, I'm willing to do it. And um, not going to do it right away. I'll wait till the evening. <laughs> so we put it off some. And then I, you know, for the next like six or seven hours, I read my spiritual books. I gave myself pep talks. And I said, when that nausea comes and all that comes, I'm just going to, you know, be mindful and really be a warrior and be with it. And I, you know, got ready and gave myself like 30 pep talks. And, and then um, the evening came. I got my meal. I walked slowly back to my place. I sat down, started to eat, awaiting nausea, anxiety, fear, dreadful states. And I sat Nothing happened. Nothing happened for the whole rest of the retreat. And I'll come back to that some because it's something about fear. You know, that when we practice with fear, sometimes looking at the fear actually means that I'm not afraid of the fear. You remember that statement from Franklin Roosevelt? The only thing we have to be afraid of is fear itself, right? And there was something that in that moment I was willing to be with the fear. I wasn't really afraid of the fear. I was probably a little anxious and something shifted. And there's like a children's book which is very much like that, which is called The Monster That Grew Small. Anyone know that book? Well, it's about fear and it's really a good book. (laughs) And it's, it's basically the monster grows small when you look at it. It's like this big, horrible monster. And when it's at a distance, 
it looks horrible and it's really scary. And when you're really willing to look at it and get closer to it, it actually gets smaller. I think that's true of a lot of fear. Isn't that interesting? Does that make some sense? You know, and I think it's very, you know, so much of our fear is based on ignorance and not knowing, whether it's on a social level or, you know, among different peoples and so forth. So it's something very powerful of really, uh, part of the practice is then committing to, to look at the fear. And that for me was, you know, it's like having an experience like that, fear changes, right? If I've known, I've really looked at that and discover uh, that it's not quite what it is. I, I have found that that's true of so many types of fear. A lot of what we're afraid of is because we don't want to touch something or look at it. And when we actually do look at it and touch it, we find that it's actually not such a big deal. Do you know that one? It's really, really important. Right? It means that people who can inquire into fear and keep doing that are have a, a gift which they which um, enriches their own lives but also can share with others so as we look at fear we want to look at also what else is happening with fear you know we want to see what what happens with the body with fear you know what would you you know when you reflect if you, maybe just now think of when you're fearful what what how does it manifest in the body Again, maybe just a, a word or two. What? Tightness. Tightness in the stomach, right? What else? Could be that nausea like I was feeling. What else? Faster breathing, Faster breathing right? Sometimes adrenaline, right? You know, it depends on the response, you know. Like what I've, what I've uh, read is that, you know, the the body is mobilized for fight or, or flight or, or freeze and uh, digestion slows down because it's not so important, right, to continue digestion when, according to the mind, digestion might not be relevant if this doesn't work. <laughs> so what else? What? Loses the appetite when, there, when there's fear, right? What else? Sweaty, right, yeah. I mean, you can think of different, there are different kinds of fear. Could also, you know, some of them uh, uh, physical threats, some of them more emotional threats, right? Any, anyone want to mention one or two more? What? Vigilance, like heightened vigilance, hyper, hyper vigilance, right? Inability to think clearly. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go to that. I'm, I'm looking at the body now, but that's really, that's crucial, right? increased heart rate, and so forth. So when we study fear, we want to really know what is happening in the body. So again, a lot of this is just to, it's like other types of mindful practice where we want to look carefully at what's happening so we really know our patterns. Because there are also going to be personal patterns related to fear. I'm going to have a particular pattern in terms of what I'm afraid of, what my body does, and what we want to know, what Ideally, we want to know that there's fear happening as soon as we can so we can be mindful and then we can actually bring some awareness and some intervention uh, if appropriate. And then what happens to the thinking? So inability to think more clearly, what else happens? 
racing thoughts, yeah. I think this is also very crucial when we look to the social manifestations of fear and even how, of course, socially fear is manipulated, especially through thinking, right? We have to be afraid. Uh, and so that it becomes, if I can say, appropriate to attack a country which had nothing to do with 9-11 because of 9-11, right? Because of all sorts of fearful thoughts. Do you remember those? What do they look like now? Again, people may have different views. I'm not seeking just to express one view, but that's how I see it. You know? So what happens, what happens when we are, what happens to our thinking with fear? Yeah, we may become hyper-obedient to an authority that we think is going to protect us, right? We may, as in the surveillance, we may give up our freedoms, right? Because we may, we may rationalize, uh, rationalize very extreme actions in the name of responding to fear, right? We may do that. And some of them may make sense, right? I'm not, I'm not really wanting to say that's uh, wrong, but we're just noticing what happens. Yeah. Yeah. We get six. We could say um, tendency towards catastrophic thinking, right? Think of again. You can see this in some of like the uh, George Zimmerman, right? You can see a certain way the thinking. Uh, again, there. You know, it's um, fear uh, has an aspect of intelligence, but it also has aspects where the thinking goes way beyond as it were, the data, right? You know, there's a, a way that thinking, there's the model which I, I, I like a lot. Some of you may know it's called the ladder of inference. Do anyone know that? It's used in organizational work quite a bit. It basically says that there's a kind of ladder which goes from raw data to, uh, you know, to selecting out certain data to finding meaning of what you select out to forming conclusions making assumptions, having beliefs, and taking action. Do you have that sense that you're going further and further away from basic experience and adding more and more meanings or assumptions? Like one of my favorite examples is of my friend and colleague, Sylvia Borstein, who um, wanted to do a retreat at the San Francisco Zen Center. So she calls up one day and says, um, I'd like to do a retreat um, and the person at the switchboard says, I'm sorry, you have to talk to Steve, but Steve's not here. Call back in the afternoon. And Sylvia uh, calls back in the afternoon, reaches the same person. Says, oh, Steve was just here. He just walked out. Call tomorrow morning. And she calls t- the next morning, and she says, you know, Steve is late for some reason. And, she sa- and Sylvia at that point says, think of this, I guess I'm not supposed to do the retreat, and which is going up the ladder, you know, going going away from the raw data, making assumptions, drawing meanings, and so forth. And in, in true Zen style, the switchboard operator says, no, I'm afraid it, it means that Steve isn't here. <laughs> <laughs> and so when we're fearful, we go up the ladder. We go way beyond the data because we're essentially, like, we're... we're um, trying to find meanings that will keep us safe, right? And we, we often go way, way beyond, and we have all, the, you know, and that's very important to see 
It goes into catastrophic thinking. We make all sorts of assumptions. Again, you can see this in all these realms, in the social realm, foreign policy, and everything. You can watch the thinking go way beyond what actually is known. And you can see that in your own mind, that we go way, way beyond the, the, the actual givens of the experience, often in ways which scare us more, right? Which scare us more, and they're kind of negative stories, and we get caught up with fear often in very negative stories. I think we know that very well personally, right? You know, in fact, when I work one-on-one with people, the single most central thing I tell them is watch the scary stories that you tell yourself. It is right at the heart of our everyday practice is, is that teaching. So we notice, we notice fear. We study fear like, like in this wonderful print. You can come up and look at this later. We study fear. We look at it. We look at it how it is in terms of the content of the fear, what we're afraid of, how, what happens with the body, what happens with the mind, what our own particular patterns are. And then we learn to uh, work in certain ways with what helps us to respond to fear. Some of it is to uh, do things which are calming of the body and calming of the mind. So a lot, you know, certain kinds of meditation can be very helpful. I think some of you know that uh, loving-kindness or metta practice classically is seen as an antidote to fear. And it's tremendous. And I have friends, Thai friends, who did loving-kindness practice when they were in prison, you know, under dictatorships. You know, and they worked with metta so they would keep both personal balance and not just go into hatred, right? not just go into anger. And so metta is a wonderful antidote to to, to fear. Um, about four years ago, I was doing a retreat in Colorado and I was camping and they took me to a place um, which they said, this is a really nice campsite, you really like it. You know, um, a week ago, uh, there was a bear which um, attacked the tent that was there, but we found the bear and took it away. And so I said, sounds good. And then, you know, <laughs> and then at about, um, about 10.30 at night when I was going to sleep, I did not quickly go to sleep. <laughs> and I was thinking about the bear. And I, even though I was told it was away, I was thinking, it was kind of like that quote with the tiger. The tiger is coming. The bear is coming. And this is where fear, how fear works. You know, like I hear a certain sound and the mind goes into hyper-interpretation of sounds. Do you know that one? Right, from um, camping and being petrified by like a squirrel. (laughs) The sounds of a squirrel at midnight can really uh, lead one to think that that squirrel is about 30 feet high. (laughs) Right. And so there I was, and I said, it's time for metta. And I did metta for three hours straight, right on the spot there. And, um, you know, actually developed empathy for the bear. And I don't, I don't know what was happening, but it was, at the end of three hours, I was not afraid. And I had a pretty good sense that I was blowing something up more than it needed to be. I went to sleep. 
And I stayed there for the entire next week and was not afraid at all. It was interesting. You know? It was interesting. Like the metta energy just got in the system. So we can do metta. We can find our own personal ways of balancing when there's fear. You really see what that is. Uh, you know, if we have a balanced mind, it's really powerful to investigate fear. What's happening in the body? What's the mind doing? Really track that. You know? Do things which are calming of the body. You know, the nervous system gets in a somewhat extreme state with fear. So something that calms the body. Take a walk, exercise, talk with a friend. Have your own repertoire for what really uh, brings you back to balance when, when, when that gets strong. You know, and then I think to somehow bring it out into how we are with others. You know, when we have really looked at all of those dimensions of fear carefully, and I think, uh, you know, the one with really watching the stories is so big, right? That we can um, notice that in others. We can notice how others are following a catastrophic story. When we really know that in ourselves, we can really help others in that way. And I think we can also, you know, we can even bring it into a workplace or a community or even the larger society. And really understanding the dynamics of fear, we can be of use. And we can really see uh, what in the society is continuing the cycles of fear and maybe what to do to, um, to shift away from the fear. And it's, comp- of course, complicated in many ways, because like I said, there is intelligence in fear. And it's not that fear is total projection. And all, you know, the dynamic of fear in the, in the human being is to let us know when there's something that's threatening. The problem is, is that for humans, often fear gets caught up with confusion, aversion, and projection, and catastrophizing. Forgive me for my pronunciation. Um, And so, again, it's not to say that fear is simply wrong. Of course, fear has a purpose, but it often, as we know, gets hijacked, so to speak. It gets hijacked by our aversion, our confusion, our delusion, our ignorance, by social factors and so forth. So let me finish with uh, maybe two quotes. Let me see. This is from the poet Yeats. He says, to look at oneself unflinchingly takes more courage than a soldier on a battlefield. That's our practice. To really deeply look into the human mind and heart, including in these difficult states, actually takes more courage than what's there with a soldier. What would a society be like if it recognized that? That actually this deep honesty with oneself and deep looking is actually very hard and takes courage. And then last quote from the uh, Sufi uh, poet, Hafiz. Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. (laughs) 
Here is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. So thank you very kindly for your attention. And we do have some time to uh, talk together, which, which I look forward to right now. So if there are any reflections or questions or uh, observations uh, of any kind, really. The other night I had something happen to me that doesn't happen very often. I had a really bad nightmare. Mm -hmm. And after I awoke... Um, I was reflecting on the, you know, I was really thinking a lot about the nightmare, the details of it. And I realized that in the nightmare that my fear was actually creating the horrible mm-hmm. outcome, that it was contagious. Yeah. So th- those people in my dream that I was afraid of were almost like just okay until they felt my fear and then yeah. they attacked me. Yeah. A wonderful, wonderful um, insights, you know, and then we can learn a lot by looking at fear in our dreams and, and to see, like you're pointing to, the contagious nature. We know that, right? We know how fear is contagious. Uh, love is also contagious. Peace is also contagious. So it's almost like this, in certain situations, which force will prevail, right? And, and that's why we, we have to all be uh, kind of experts at fear. And so we can intervene and be the forces for that peace and that, uh, the care and the love. And then just to, you know, just to see how, you know, maybe that uh, anxiety, which maybe is there in your system, not necessarily in everyday life, becoming real big, and then in the dream, it gets amplified. That's, I think, what you're saying, right? It gets amplified and becomes quite large. That's really... Uh, and that can happen in daily life as well. And it's really interesting to, to study that. So I think that uh, dreams can be a wonderful um, place to look. Yeah. And I know as we are, you know, as we are following this path of um, inquiry and development and looking into our lives, there is actually a way that dreams sometimes are more vivid and there can be more fear. And that can be a sign, actually, of growth. We see this on retreats quite a bit. Particularly on loving-kindness retreats, it's more extreme than mindfulness for some reason. People have the most very volatile dreams. People come to me in the morning and say, last night I was an axe murderer. Is this my true nature? (laughs) You are engaged in the path of purification. <laughs> so, please, other other comments or questions, reflections, please. Uh, I'm not sure how many monks on forest walk retreats actually were eaten by jaguars or tigers. There's no stories about that, but there are stories of people who didn't take, in the real incidents, uh, were not careful enough around bears Mm -hmm. who were eaten. Mm -hmm. So there is an evolutionary 
point where fear evolved to protect us. Right. And yeah. and I think the mindfulness thing is 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 to realize that sometimes fear is is telling you something that's important and sometimes yeah. it's not. I mean, I had an experience driving last week in a, a car cut in front of me. Yeah. And I swerved into the next lane yeah. to avoid hitting it. Yeah. And it was like totally automatic, but there was no accident and no death. So That's right. Was, you know. Yeah. And your name? Mark. Mark. So Mark brought out a really, um, really important point, which I, I brought out some, but I think you expressed it quite beautifully and uh, was really kind of um, really completing some of what I was saying, which is that uh, there is an evolutionary value to to fear. That that's clear. That you know, I was I was using the language of that there is intelligence to fear, and that what's really important when we study fear is to be able to make that discrimination between when is fear intelligent and appropriate, and when are we going way beyond the data? When is it projection? Um, something generated socially, something generated by our background, and so forth. So that is a very, that's that's hard sometimes, but I think it's really yeah. First of all, it's very clear that fear is um, in many cases extremely useful and is there for a reason, right? Is there for a reason? And it's in you know the reason that the body goes into the changes that it goes into is from a biological point of view very important you know that we summon the energy to run away from that saber-toothed tiger right and to uh, know what's a threat right and know what's not a threat um, as we get more civilized I think it gets more complicated and there there are so many more of the situations where the fear is something we amplify magnify it's more, we would say, confusion and delusion. And how to know the difference, really, really crucial. So thank you. Thank you for that point. And that's challenging because in all the situations, you know, even something like the uh, Trayvon Martin Zimmerman example, you have both, both types of aspect there. You know, what is, what is appropriate fear? What is going way beyond what's there and so forth. So it's, it's uh, complicated. Yeah. Other, any comments, questions? Stories of your own working with fear? Uh, my name is Pemba. Oh, my name is Pemba. Okay. My name is Pemba. <laughs> And um, the lady over there talked about being afraid of mice. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid of spiders. Yeah. So, and I know that's irrational in a lot of ways because there's not that many spiders that are going to hurt you running around. So then I had to think, well, is it because I was a butterfly in my past life or something? I mean, you know, I mean, there must be a bigger something. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a question about something that, uh, like fear of uh, spiders, uh, which, which I think is, is, um, is there for quite a number of people. You know, spiders or mice. You know, I've certainly uh, known people uh, as well with that. And 
so we're really asking, like, where does that come from? And because I can see it as irrational. And, you know, it's interesting because I think the fear is more in that reptilian brain. It's cut off from the neocortex, right? And I think sometimes when the fear arises, this is partly what I think your point was, uh, that, that uh, it's often disconnected from our rational minds in certain points. And it may get established there. And to work with it, you may need to somehow go into that part of the brain with some kind of intervention that actually goes explicitly to that place, which is, you know, um, to, to transform that. Um, but yeah, where it comes from, hard to say, right? And, but there should be some reasons, you know, if we really knew everything. Yeah. And so I think that's why, in terms of fear, um, response on the level of the body is quite important because a lot of the fear is, is in the body. Like my nausea, I had no ideas that were connected with my fear. It was on the level of the body. And, and it, was, um, it was hard to get a sense of in that way, right? Because it wasn't, it wasn't coming with ideas. It was, it was um, and so it, it uh, you know, and sometimes that's connected with trauma, right? If there's been trauma in the past, uh, you know, there could be, I'm not saying this is for you, but could be something that you experienced very, very young, where you got bit by a spider, which as an adult you wouldn't think was a big deal. As a kid, that would be a big deal. And it might have been, uh, might have almost got into the level of trauma where it stayed in your system, even though as an adult you could be rational about it. Because things, a lot of the fear stays at the level of the body and really needs more of a body intervention. That's, I think that's, that's important probably socially as well because the fear is in the body and how do we, how do we work with that? I think that's a, that's a, I don't fully know the answer to that, but I think that's an important question. So it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Please, um, to your left. Yeah. Hi, I'm, my name is Matt. Hi. Hi. <clears throat> yeah, when you were saying, I was thinking about how when I'm feeling fear, I, my brain will put together a good case for that fear. Yeah. Like, start finding bits of evidence in what's going on in my life or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And really present a very convincing case. And I notice I can always find that case, generally. Yeah, yeah. But I was talking to somebody, and what you were just saying reminded me of this. This is a person who's a psychotherapist, and they worked around this issue, and they said that there were studies they were finding, which is that the body, we can have that feeling of fear. Because I was mentioning, I said, well, sometimes when I get in fear, I have these crazy thoughts, or they might be from childhood. Or, and yeah. I'm like, where is that thought coming from? I mean, yeah. Why am I even thinking about that? And he said they're finding, or they in studies that, people that the brain will look for something to fill in yeah because it's having the fear so then sort of it's sort of a reversal yeah we'll find a thought to make sense of that fear so like that the, the physical thing comes first but our brain that's will... a great wonderful point really that that the in, in in many ways the fear may be there and the uh the thoughts come later we look for something you know like 
Like we, I, I, I think dreams are very much like that, right? The fear is there. And in the dream, there's the construction of a whole narrative, right? Which in dreams, it's very clear that the, the fear comes first, right? And the narrative is, to some extent, arbitrary, right? It could, could be all sorts of things, you know? And I think that's, um, that's quite important. You know, it's, a very, it's very important. And it also maybe, uh, yeah, it, it, it suggests that the kind of really um, tracking the thoughts is very crucial. Knowing when we're telling those stories is very, very crucial. But then we may also need to respond at the level of the body, you know, and at the level of, of, the, of our, the energetic system. Uh, that just to tell us it, ourselves it's irrational may not do so much. You know, and so that's where we can really work with um, um, something that affects more the heart, like metta practice, like the heart practices and something that affects the body and that calms, really calms the, the nervous system, is, I think is very, very crucial. But it's a very, it's a great, uh, it's a great observation because I think we could probably see that socially. Sometimes the fear is there. It's, I mean, you can see that sometimes in foreign policy. Like, who will be our enemy? We need one, right? right? Let's, are they a good candidate? You know, Manuel Noriega, not a very adequate candidate. Narco-terrorist, okay for a year or two, but not really sustainable. We need more, you see where I'm going. (laughs) So it's very interesting. Sometimes the fear is there and the thoughts follow. I think that's really what you're saying. It's very, very interesting. You know, and sometimes there's just fear in the system. You know, the personal system or the social system and it needs to go somewhere. So it makes it more complex in terms of responding. But I think maybe I'll, I'll, I'll just have one more thought, and then we'll, we'll close with the dedication of merit and some metta. I think the, what seems important to me is that we, you know, my hope is that you're more interested in fear than you were before you came tonight. I don't hope that you necessarily have more fear. <laughs> but I hope that whatever fear appears, that you actually take it as practice. In the, like in the Tibetan uh, Lojong teachings, it says, take all obstacles as the path of practice. So that if fear arises, you're more inclined to say, oh, fear, a chance to explore. <laughs> and to respond and, and to know that that training is right at the heart of what we do. And we can see also how in the long run it's also valuable for our community and our society to have people who really know fear, who are not afraid of fear, and who know how to work with it is really, really important in the long run. So So we'll close. It's appropriate with metta. Just a few moments of metta, then I'll do a dedication of merit. Metta classically antidote to fear in the teachings of the Buddha. He said, when you can really have that open heart there for yourself and others, fear cannot coexist with that. So feeling that quality of heart, 
wishing well for oneself. May I be happy. May I be safe. May I be free from harm. May I be healthy or as healthy as possible. May my life unfold with ease. And feeling that heart of kindness, moving out from one's heart, radiating out in front and in back, so that it starts to fill up this room, this hall. Wishing each of us well in our precious lives. Filling up the hall with the energy of metta, of loving kindness. And then letting that radiating heart go out further in front and back, left and right, above and below. Filling up Berkeley and the East Bay, going in all directions out from one's heart. And finally going in all directions without limit, this energy of wishing well for all beings. in front and back, left and right, above and below, without limit in all directions, radiating out from our hearts. We close with the traditional dedication of merit May our time together, our exploration together, be of benefit to ourselves, be of benefit to all of those with whom we're in contact. And then beyond that circle of acquaintances, may our practice extend out in known ways and mysterious ways. to be of benefit ultimately for all beings without exception. So thank you so much and it's a pleasure to be here again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.